You're listening to Some Pulp on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Welcome to episode 11. I can't believe we've done, or will have done, 11 episodes. <laughs> it's amazing. It, it, it's incredible. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards, and I'm joined by... Michael Edwards. Welcome to an episode focused on the, the incipient role of television in promoting and uh, giving access to, uh, to music uh, as... Uh, portrayed in various TV programs that come about in the uh, mid-60s and in some of the related media like uh, concert films and Elvis films and so forth. Um, and we want to look at um, sort, sort of the, the role of television in producing uh, a global and transcontinental view of uh, music and uh, how we can hear different genres uh, get access to different uh, subgroups in uh, in our larger culture, uh, and so we'll review some uh, syndicated and primetime network shows from the '60s, and uh, how they began to break the hold of AM radio formats and advertisers on uh, on programming. Yeah, I'm kind of interested just because, uh, yeah, to bring up radio that presumably radio was already kind of doing God's work, as it were, of spreading music around to people and. Um, how does that transition happen to TV? Do, um, do these shows just try to replicate a, a DJ type situation? Or I think as we'll see something very different kind of develops um, pretty soon in the TV era. Well, uh, FM radio is about to break out as well uh, as a, a uh, platform to play longer form music, uh, you know, whole albums, that sort of thing. But it's still a little bit in the future of, uh, of this era. Uh, but as uh, more and more uh, musical acts, groups, uh, Motown, particularly out of Detroit and uh, Philadelphia and Memphis Sound and other uh, rhythm and blues music, they, they need a place to uh, uh, sort of introduce themselves and to promote themselves and... Uh, you know the the hungry uh, TV ratings czars of each of the uh, uh, you know main networks, which is ABC, NBC, and uh, CBS. Although CBS just stays with the Ed Sullivan Show uh, as a, a, a soundstage uh, for uh, receiving and and uh, promoting musical groups of various sorts. But as uh, somebody uh, says on the uh, Shindig video uh, that uh, we put in the show notes, um, rock groups kind of felt ill place between a dog act <laughs> at the beginning and a, a, a puppeteer show uh, in which a man talks to his his hand. <laughs> so senior, you get to the, contend the, with this juxtaposition when yeah. you know you may have a very serious ballad or a a protest song or something, and it's like, go back to the dog, someone might be saying. <laughs> right, right. And, of course, uh, the Ed Sullivan show was you know, filled with uh, 
ex-vaudeville type type acts. And even the magician's acts were sometimes zeroed in on a, a single card, which uh, is not doesn't make for uh, you know great dramatic television. But uh, at any rate, I I think um, it's an exciting era. And again, it's it's an era in which uh, ABC reigns supreme as as trying something, you know, they're at the bottom of the of the network ladder, and they're always trying to defeat CBS or NBC, which are considered, you know, uh, proto quality networks. And ABC is the Fox or the CW uh, of the <laughs> network battles, and uh, you know, so you can always find something inter- uh, entertaining and and uh, innovative in, in an ABC program, even though they don't give them much time, and. Uh, uh, we, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, uh, the, uh, the among the programs we want to talk about besides, we'll, we'll mention uh, American Bandstand, just to let people know where yeah. we're headed. So are you saying ABC was pivotable? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm interested to, to hear what it's like um, in, the, in the 50s and 60s mindset when these shows kind of come on the, the, the stage. And, uh, you know, even sort of... Uh, a day in the life of like if if you're a kid or a teenager and how do you hear new bands or new songs um how do you you know is it just the radio is it just word of mouth well uh i i think uh, we uh, we talked about the radio programming and how tightly uh, it was controlled by the the program manager and by the the uh, prime time sort of DJ person. You know, there, there's two segments in a, a teenager's life in the 60s. There's the school day. Uh, school day ends 3 o'clock, 3.30, and you got to get home in time to watch American Bandstand, which which emanates live out of Philadelphia. That's uh, late 50s and, you know, you know, is on the air for, for another two decades under uh, Dick Clark's uh, reign. Um, uh, then uh, as you get to evening, if you're not, you know, glued to the uh, AM radio station that plays pop music because most of them by six o'clock are either off the air or they're, they're playing public affairs programming. There might be a sermon, (laughs) you know, there might be uh, all all sorts of things uh, about the, uh, the news of the day and so forth. So you're, you're desperate for, for some kind of music uh, that's not just big band or not what your parents are listening to. And, uh, and, and so you're looking for something different and, um, uh, around about 1963, there begin to be programs in prime time, um, and in uh, you know Shindig, as it's called on uh, ABC, uh, Hullabaloo, which follows kind of in a <laughs> copying mode, copying mode by NBC, uh, and then uh, you know my, my my favorite of the of the era that actually precedes both of those that I want to talk about a little bit later is one called Hootenanny. Which uh, appears in uh, uh, on uh, ABC and features uh, an assortment of genres, uh, but prominently kind of Americana folk type music. And Hootenanny is filmed live on on college campuses, which makes it unique, and it makes uh, adults very nervous <laughs> because they see what the college crowd looks like, what they listen to, and uh, as, we'll, as we'll we'll talk a bit later. Uh, eventually, they become uh, convinced that Hootenanny is subversive and uh, <laughs> undermining. 
the the yeah. a new version of the never ending struggle of adults that want those kids to stop finding their own way, <laughs> right? Because whether or not it, it meets any you know, definition of subversive, it looks subversive, <laughs> and uh, like you know the comic book problem that you know Congress was called in to deal with in the early fifties, <laughs> uh, you know the the producers and mostly the advertisers of these programs get nervous about what it appears to be endorsement of the kind of music, the kind of dancing. That's another big, big part of this uh, because they're, uh, whether they're on Hootenanny or American Bandstand, but especially in some of the uh, growing syndicated shows that come out of the, the mid sixties, uh, there doesn't seem to be an adult in charge. There's no <laughs> chaperone. You know, there may be a DJ, there may be an over and air announcer, but uh, it looks like a wild uh, scene of, uh, of run a, you know, uh, runaway teenagers <laughs> just doing whatever they want. So, I mean, but if you're going to call your show Hullabaloo, I, I, think, right. I think there should be some amok being run. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they get their chance. Uh, and uh, when we talk about Hullabaloo, I'll talk about how derivative it begins to be compared to Shindig, which is kind of the original <laughs> American ABC show, which is itself derivative of what's going on in Britain and Europe at the time. And... Uh, in fact, all of the uh, early British invasion groups that end up appearing on Shindig actually get filmed in Britain, and then that is uh, not live, obviously, and it, it is uh, you know, a segment of one or more of these shows because uh, that's where the, uh, the innovation of, uh, of the, the, the Brit and European market uh, you know, beats us to the punch. Um, 3.30, you're watching American Bandstand. It goes on to 4.30. You got supper, and then you're you know you're uh, you know, listen to the radio. It's not satisfying because any of the more uh, fresh and modern rock and roll or or rhythm and blues uh, is not going to be uh, broadcast after seven o'clock. So we're into you know the the public affairs things. So it's an innovation when some of these shows start coming on at Eastern time at eight o'clock, nine o'clock. And in the case of Hullabaloo, it's on and at 10 o'clock so i just uh i can't get past the names of these shows like that i feel like where there's some other shows we we never get to hear about like brouhaha and ruckus and hubbub and clamor and furor and like who named these shows hullabaloo shindig hootenanny <laughs> yeah well it, it often is uh an enterprising dj and in, in the case of shindig it's the uh, uh popular uh Mid '60s uh, DJ uh, and uh, I can't remember the uh, callers of his radio station, but uh, Johnny O'Neill, he's very, very uh, popular and uh, pitches this show. Uh, and you know, the Los Angeles uh, uh, area becomes a kind of uh, uh, referendum on popular culture uh, and what's what's available uh, for TV consumption and so forth, and so. Uh, you know, New York has been the center of that, but starting because of things like Steve Allen's show and so forth that we've talked about previously, uh, you know, here, here's a place where you can pitch ideas to the corporate executives now located mainly on the West Coast, uh, because that's where a lot of their uh, 
program is coming from. We, we, you know, ABC again is the is the network that has Maverick, which is this great postmodern western. Uh, so uh, Shindig uh, kind of leads the way and then opens the door, so to speak, for the can- pandemonium, <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe, maybe the, the candemonium <laughs> of uh, of hullabaloo uh, and a whole sort of. Uh, uh, Syndicated shows, you know, eventually including uh, shows like Soul Train, uh, that has a primarily African American audience, and certainly a, a primarily an African American, uh, uh, you know, broadcast uh, uh, emphasis, both where it's shown and what cities it's shown, and the and the uh, musical acts that are portrayed. And then there's one uh, I want to zero in on called the Lloyd Thaxton Show, who's also another DJ. Who becomes uh, fairly prominent in in syndicated TV? He he, he suddenly goes from the Los Angeles market to uh, maybe to 150 stations, which is a large number. I mean, this is before you know uh, game shows like uh, Wheel of Fortune and others. This is you know 20 years before there's any kind of syndication of that nature. Uh, and and the uniqueness of of Lloyd Thaxton is he isn't just uh, you know portraying a bunch of uh, of uh, you know, wild uh, new acts, you know, funny haircuts, or or, or maybe a group like the Shangri Las, which is a girl group, which is you know wearing these leather outfits, uh, supposed to be very provocative. He actually interviews the, uh, the the groups and asks them some good questions about their music and you know who their influences are, and so it's very unusual because Shindig is really a, basically a musical variety act. Uh, where you know you, you stuff as many songs in yeah. a broadcast as possible, uh, along with a lot of uh, uh, very silly uh, skits uh, with some uh, you know comedians of the time and so forth. Um, but uh, uh, let's let's start with uh, with Shindig and and talk about uh, how it, how it made its way on ABC because they're looking. This is. Uh, uh, fall of 1963, they're looking for uh, a way to break in to network TV with a uh, rock music uh, uh, list of performers, most of whom w- will have become popular and known already, and so this is a way to showcase them. And then some segments in which uh, you're introducing one or two new bands a week. Uh, and you have the... Uh, the uh, the uh, offstage sort of DJ, excuse me, introducing the Shindiggers, which is the name <laughs> of the of the of the female dancers, and uh, you know basically it looks like they're just doing the the jerk and uh, the twist and you know kind of prototypical uh, uh, surf kind of uh, dancing, uh, and uh, uh, and they're they're dressed like cheerleaders. In fact, I think uh, Tony Basil, who had the song um, "Hey Mickey," uh, uh, one of the first uh, heavy rotation MTV acts, she was a choreographer uh, on on these programs, and, uh, and of course, she was in a cheerleading outfit in her first uh, music video. So I guess it it goes with the the show. And the uh, the value or purpose of Shindig, in many ways, is simply that it was first. Yeah, and uh, and though it doesn't stay on very long, uh, it, it, I think it runs about um, a year and a half, and and uh, you know it has great ratings at the beginning. Then there's uh, you know official concern 
about uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, the uh, you know, the effect it's having on the American teenager. Uh, you know, a, a group of uh, of uh, consumers that now have some disposable income because they're starting to work at fast food places like McDonald's, which you know comes on yeah. the horizon. Uh, and uh, you know what? You know, it used to be you could you could feel safe and, and let your your children just watch whatever is on, but now it becomes a monitoring. You know, there, there's no taping, there's no no VHS technology, and so whew, if you can just get through that broadcast without them watching that terrible show, you're successful for a week of. <laughs> Staving so off just, juvenile delinquency. This just sounds like an incredibly precious time because today there's just no limits on anything. Right. <laughs> and, um, right. And I I can remember just you know vaguely now uh, you know you know my again my parents I guess we would consider them permissive, but they they let me watch whatever I watch and sometimes watch it with me because they were they were interested in in modern music and uh, where it's going and. Uh, you know, my dad was concerned a bit about the Beatles, but then he heard yesterday, and he knew where they were going to be okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that was his measure. Is it wasn't just all clanging instruments and so forth. And of course, with the Beatles, it never was. I mean, it was you know George Martin was in charge, and he was going to make sure it was very uh, pleasing and uh, and very uh, cleverly arranged sorts of music. And so the Beatles weren't weren't his problem, but Rolling Stones were a problem, <laughs> and. Uh, and eventually, Shindig is is ironically replaced by The Outer Limits, <laughs> which is an even more scary and and yeah. perhaps cor- corruptive influence, Paranoid. even from the yeah from the themes of it. But but initially, Shindig is uh, you know a pleasant uh, innovation uh, and uh, you know gives gives us a platform, however temporary, for. Uh, for you know the kind of music we now regard as the the golden oldies era of uh, of popular music, um, and you know by the end of the of the sixties because of FM radio and so forth, you've got all sorts of experimental uh, musical forms available, and it doesn't matter because FM music wasn't considered a a, a money producer like AM radio tended to be, and sponsors and FM radio you you could you know go a whole hour with one sponsor. And uh, now with satellite radio and and uh, all of that, I don't I don't know how the, the the money is made except up front in a big contract, and you're not worried about sponsoring individual shows, uh, which of course uh, even network TV had to had to worry about. You had to worry about how your product was associated with it. So uh, Shindig precedes um, Hullabaloo, which which appears on NBC and. And the difference of, of Hullabaloo from, from Shindig is, if you watch an episode of Shindig, it's, it's in black and white, of course, because ABC doesn't start introducing color until two or three years later. But NBC is now trying to get every kind of uh, production, either film or video, in, in yeah. color. And so the production values are, uh, are much higher uh, which is probably not a, a, a good thing for NBC in that it it uh, you know, brings a kind of uh, high definition in, in at least in color not not in, you know, literally in HD but it, it highlights the dancing and the girls who who appear in specialized costumes <laughs> short skirts kind of mini skirts and and white boots you know uh, knee length uh, and they're dancing 
in cages. <laughs> no. I'm just picturing Austin <laughs> Powers now. But <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly the right right association. Uh, and and yet they also had some some balladeers uh, on their roster. Uh, and I remember uh, hearing Petula Clark's Downtown for the first time. You know, and it, it was a, it, unusual for you to see the musical act or or a female singer or a male balladeer in person. I mean, it, you know, it, it's kind of an amazing thing to see. That's what Petula Clark looks like. <laughs> and and uh, in most cases, they are singing live, which is, again, unusual, although occasionally you can tell there is lip syncing going on, and, and I think that especially uh, accrues to uh, the... Uh, uh, rock groups who were who were kind of programmed, uh, created groups that don't didn't, didn't really grow up, you know, singing, didn't grow up playing music, uh, and they're sort of artificially, yeah, um, their dad know, put together the studio or <laughs> you know, or or he or or their dad is the guy who's sponsoring them uh, on local radio, and then suddenly they they make the leap to uh, uh, TV, and uh, you know he he agrees to do the uh the dairy commercial or you know what whatever it is he's he's uh, uh taken as a vocation in life so uh seeing Petula Clark in downtown but with the hullabaloo dancers it doesn't i mean it, it is a song you could dance to but it's it's more of a ballad and so their herky jerky motions their you know provocative motions don't go with every act and every every uh artist that uh <laughs> That was going to perform for them, so uh, that that grew a bit tiresome. And Hullabaloo doesn't last very long itself. Another another two years after that, but it has broken open the possibility that you can not just have Nat King Cole on. He's a safe act, you know. Yeah. You know, wonderful singer, uh, and uh, uh, you can have um, a country artist get his own show, like Jimmy Dean, who's of course nowadays known more for his sausage than but he was a singer country singer and you know you know comic performer uh and uh he got an hour show and so it opens up the possibility that a single named uh performer like Jimmy Dean later the Smothers brothers later Glenn Campbell they get their own shows and are able to uh not only have a uh, you know the the typical kind of acts you'd expect, but you have the chance to bring in uh, uh, the, the more popular and, and or maybe more seductive uh, music. <laughs> that uh, you know, for instance, I remember a, a Smothers Brothers show. Again, this is later in the in the uh, '60s. Simon and Garfunkel perform, and they're not singing uh, "Bridge," uh, uh, you know, "Over Troubled Waters." They're they're singing some you know protest type songs that they're you know they're known for. Uh, and uh, uh, edgy songs like the ones they perform for Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and they were on CBS, and they had much tighter control, uh, CBS did, on what they would show and what they would yeah. allow. And there was constant censoring issues there. But uh, So I do have a question just about that. The, um, you know, it's tempted to draw a, a straight-up um, simplistic story of the media and the music industry was a monolithic, you might even say hegemonic force that gets diversified, you know, whether you want to point to MTV as the start of that, you know, or um, in, into today where there's like no, 
there's no real one place to go for music. There's no center of cultural conversation around music. Um, there's some popular blogs, but that's about it. And uh, when these TV shows are coming out in the 60s, does it feel like a monolithic machine or does it feel like, oh, there's more variety than I've ever experienced before? Even if, you know, you might observe the facts and go, oh, they're manufacturing stars, they're censoring, they're controlling. Um, to the 60s youth, does it feel like, whoa, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on? Uh, I think it, there's a little bit of, of both. There, there's this, I, I think, uh, you know the I I can't exactly represent the teenage mind in the mid sixties. You must speak for all. <laughs> but um, I mean, I thought it was exciting. I thought it was uh, daring to to watch these shows and to hear music I wouldn't hear on WAKR, which is our local top forty station in Akron. Uh, and then I began to realize that even the radical groups I was being shown were. Still a bit manufactured. They're, 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 they they homogenized them a little bit than they would if we if I ever had seen them performed live in a club. Yeah. Uh, although there weren't a lot of clubs, I think that would qualify. You know that that you, you know they you have nightclubs where uh, band music, instrumental type music, and other yeah. uh, are performed just just like on the TV shows that you see. Uh, Are you saying there where, wasn't a Howard's Club hell? <laughs> yeah, there's not. There's not a. Is that what the eight stood for? Yep. I didn't know. Um, on the other hand, groups like the Who, uh, certainly more like the Rolling Stones, uh, who are you know kind of prefabricated in one way, but they use their appearances to undermine that sense of uh, uh, predictability. Um, and so Mick, Mick Jagger, you know, may say, no, I won't point to my crotch on this, but he does, or he yeah. will. And, uh, you know, the Who uh, were famous, at least in, in, in my circles, for being a, uh, a band that uh, are always going to, you know, speak truth to power. Uh, <laughs> although I don't think we had that phrase. But, I mean, you know, uh, you know when, when Tommy comes out, when... when uh, you know who's next, which which has the the famous ballad. I won't get fooled again. All those kinds of things. They're not made for TV events, and uh, so a safer group, obviously, to have if you're going to have a group is the Beach Boys because they're not going to defame America. They're going to, you know, speak in in Brian Wilson's tone of voice, which is you know peaceful. Uh, it's about learning to grow up. It's about learning to fit in. Um, and you know, I, I think Brian can be also subversive, but you know, uh, the Beach Boys uh, are are the more typical kind of act. The level of uh, provocation uh, is is that kind. Um, but you know, before any of this actually occurs, and I'm going to move backwards in time. I want to I want to talk about a show that ABC at first appeared to be, you know. Uh, very innovative and radical about, uh, and then later just just bowed to the the kind of pressure that uh, you know all public TV and radio networks were subject to in the sixties and seventies, and that is the the, the program called Hoot Nanny. You know, and Hoot Nanny is a term that you know kind of has has a lots of different meanings, and depending on what what part of the country 
that you're you're from, what region. Uh, it's it's basically a, a big party at which there's going to be guitars brought out and uh, you know st- upright basses brought out uh, and maybe uh, you know some drums. But it, you know, it, it's it's an attempt to bring to television a sense of multiple genres and multiple groups uh, coming together to uh, perform songs that are meaningful that, that that talk about real things about during real times and uh uh you know, they're they're not programmed somewhere in New York or Los Angeles they're they're on college campuses where you can't control your audience and their responses and so uh you know that that includes uh, all the the famous folk groups of of the time the Kingston Trio the Limelighters uh, individual artists uh like uh uh, Joan Baez, and uh, you know, for several episodes, uh, it's hot, and, and really, it, 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 it uh, becomes a phenomenon, as we as we say, where uh, everybody the next day is talking about it. Did you see this? Uh, can you believe they sang that? Uh, and uh, you know, songs about police brutality, uh, songs about the Freedom Riders going to Mississippi. And uh, I can, uh, you know, read read in history that uh, the the network, uh, you know, you know, bow tie folks, <laughs> they either weren't watching it or they didn't realize what they had unleashed. <laughs> uh, and uh, and it, you know, you know, fortunately, you can, you can see uh, some uh, uh, YouTube videos. But even better, you know, uh, Shout Factory, which does such a great job of uh, producing vintage TV. Uh, you know, you can get a, a, a DVD called "The Best of Hootenanny," where uh, you can see for yourself how electric it was to be watching this live. And the host of it was, of all people, uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Jack Linkletter, son of the famous Art Linkletter, who had you know been pervasively on television for two decades. And you know, you know, Jack is this uh, uh, respectable-looking suit and tie fellow. Uh, who is sort of like your on-scene reporter. It's like he's listening in with you. Uh, and uh, it, it was really exciting. It was exciting to see it uh, the first time. It's you know, very gratifying to see it uh, the second time uh, on the later media. Yeah, um, I, I remember a few years back, maybe it was around when Pete Seeger passed, um, looking up some of his videos and seeing his Hootenanny video when he was uh, teaching yodeling and uh, just joyfully playing his banjo, and uh, just that that whole atmosphere of of that kind of show was was very interesting, right? And of course, uh, this was the era in which uh, Pete Seeger is about to be blacklisted, meaning uh, he cannot perform uh, on any uh, respectable television network, uh, uh, and uh, you know he he obviously gets invited to perform everywhere all the time. Uh, because he's uh, he's a piercing personality. He he is uh, you know labeled a communist, uh, and maybe maybe he's a socialist of some sort. Uh, but uh, you know he's not the only one, and certainly not guilty of anything less uh, uh, any less than some of the performers that weren't self proclaimed uh, advocates of uh, you know redistribution of wealth and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, so unfortunately, he was invited to Congress too. To uh, I remember right. reading through some of the the transcripts of his appearances there, and it was just kind of a 
astonishing how he he was very firm. He would not just uh, give in to the 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 witch hunt, as it were, or you know, they'd be like, "Why why were you associating with this? Did you perform at this at this function?" And he would just say, "That's my business." I, I, you know, unless you actually have some crime you want to accuse me of, what I do is my own business. And um, even though that's like, you know, you might see any random YouTube video of someone trying to assert their rights to cops or something, this was like a very, very bold national stage. And um, even just reading, even without hearing his voice, it was, you could kind of feel his very like simple, kind spirit, but firm and just like... <laughs> I'm not going to give into this, this, whatever this is, this is not good Americans. <laughs> well, as much as uh, Pete Seeger's music and that, uh, the music of the Weavers, which is a group he performed with many times, uh, even though I think it inspires the, the uh, development of Hootenanny, uh, it, it also leads to its demise because so many folk singers of the time, uh, you, know, you know, Joan Baez being one of them, uh, they began to boycott and and refuse the invitation to perform, which could have been fairly lucrative at the time, because even though folk music, uh, you know, that genre, so-called folk music, which you know has lots and lots of different names and and can be broken out into lots of different uh, versions of the of the genre, uh, it's still not a very uh, best-selling. It's not like you're not going to get a uh, a gold record. Uh, from doing folk music, but you're going to have an appreciative audience, a quiet audience, uh, who are going to come to outdoor concerts. They're going to they're going to come to uh, any any kind of uh, amphitheater. Uh, and uh, my my aunt Barbara, I uh, uh, my dear aunt Barbara, I, I credit with uh, you know making me aware of these groups. Like I'd never heard of Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan wouldn't have been played on AM radio yeah. at, at at any point in the early '60s. And uh, the, the the point being, we, songs like "Where are are all the flowers gone?" which is an anti-war song, uh, and you know songs about John Henry, which is a a, a freedom writer's song about uh, the uh, fight for civil rights in the in the in the deep South. But you know, certainly it's a it's a uh, global uh, affair. Uh, as long as you know, I'll put it this way, as long as there was. Three or four guys and a guitar and an upright bass, you know, and and they're white singing these songs. They can be fairly innocuous. Even even something like the Brothers Four singing, "Where Have All the Flowers Gone?" But it becomes personalized and and uh, reified on Hootenanny because there are no dancers to distract you. There may be some shots of the crowd, but it just that piercing poignant uh, harmony, uh, really uh, electrifying the audience who, who don't associate where all the flowers gone to World War II or the Civil War. They're thinking about that Southeast Asian war that we seem to be getting in without being called a war called Vietnam. And, yeah. and uh, you know, so, so you got this confluence of uh, uh, war, the draft, uh, the uh, civil rights movement, the free speech movement in Berkeley that comes out in 1964, uh, and uh, you, you have a a conflagration. You have a, a fire on stage, so to speak, not literally, but suddenly ABC is besieged with 
good Americans who are saying, why are you showing this? You're just fueling <laughs> the fire. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then when, you know, it, it kind of falls in on itself. And so when Pete Seeger is not allowed to perform, uh, the other folk singers of the time who might be able to make some money out of this, not by their appearance on the show, but, you know, the, the word will yeah. spread. Oh, I just heard this song. Uh, and uh, when they pull out, there's nothing left except the commercial uh, approved by the network kinds of performers, in which I'd include uh, a group I actually like quite a bit called the New Christie Minstrels and have kind of a storied uh, place in in uh, folk music at the time. But they were really, they were not authentic. They were a group of people who came to auditions like you know, American uh, idol, and they picked out the people, and and they were circumspect. They they tried to get uh, a, a wide swath of Americans, and so they had people of color. They had you know various kinds of instrumentalists, yeah. and they produced some really good art uh, uh, albums, which uh, to this day I still listen to. But the real folk people who had withdrawn from Hootenanny basically found out that. Uh, they're just going to show Barry Maguire every week. Uh, they're they're, they're going to have the uh, the fake weavers, you know. They're, they're not going to have anybody new and fresh and exciting and daring. And so within a, a year and a half, uh, Hootenanny went by the, the wayside. And actually, Hootenanny was replaced by Shindig. And so there's this time slot that ABC keeps filling with you know, possibly uh, subterranean <laughs> interest that they end up always having to kill themselves because the the uh, advertisers and you know the so-called public affairs press uh, keep saying, "Well, you're just going to breed a bunch of rebellious people." And of course, in a, in a in a good sense, they probably were because it was those you know songs that gave people a conscience that they didn't know they could have. Yeah. And uh, and yet, uh, you know that that's sort of the state of, of '60s television. It's finding its way, and uh, uh, and even even thinking of our era presently, uh, it's only safe kinds of things that do make it on, and and it, it, you know the networks have cable and satellite TV to go to the nether regions of <laughs> culture and storytelling and so forth. Well, I was going to make a point. Um, one of the, the, the few lessons I remember from political science class, and I, I swear this will relate to this discussion, was uh, I think it was when we were examining the, the political philosophy of James Madison, he had a, some theories about how um, just having a monolithic culture was very dangerous because if the people all had an idea, then they will steamroll um, everyone with it and the change will be too rapid and who knows what could happen. And so, you know, the political philosophy was you need people to identify themselves in so many different ways that they never feel like a unified whole. Um, you know, there's, you know, well, I'm, I'm from here and I was born this time and I, I like, cherries i don't know whatever but um and i feel like that's how i would describe like mass media today is there's there's not a lot of like full culture spanning things not the way it it seems like there was 
in the 20th century where something could capture the national attention. I mean, unless you want to say the Kardashians or something does that now or the Bachelorette or I don't know, I'm, I'm just naming trashy TV. But, um, and is there, is there some of that sense of like, as the, with the fall of these major network TV shows and we, you know, you get into MTV and then you get into Napster and you get into, um, you know, in our era now where every single niche and corner is catered to, you can go find your subculture and never stick your head out and, uh, just be absorbed by it. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I have a question, but you know, do we find our way back? Is there a way to have, I mean, I, we're not going to make this an Apple or Spotify podcast, but you know some of these companies seem to be trying to try to set up a new cultural center for music. But is that a thing that can happen anymore? Yeah, I I, I think it's very atomistic, and and uh, in some ways that's a good thing that that there's so many different venues and so many different places for artists to you know plant their music and and uh let it find an audience if there is but uh, it also means that there's no you know capitalistic way to drive people to one venue or another and even to identify what the product is that that people are are trying to 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 buy and uh you know I I just noticed in my local uh meaning Anchorage uh Barnes and Noble that that they've wiped out an entire shelf unit of uh cds so they could put vinyl back in yeah. which is is kind of amazing to me but i i think there's something about the uh limitations of the medium and i don't mean sound quality i mean the fact that you've got to sit there and listen to six songs on one side and then flip it over and listen to six yeah. more on the, the other funneled attention <laughs> yeah and i think that's uh it's yeah, another way of curating the the market uh so that you know, I'm disappointed because I couldn't buy uh, at that time a uh, a vinyl version of No Peer Pressure by Brian Wilson. It seemed retrograde to have to buy a CD version of it. Uh, and, and of course, I, I didn't have to do that. I could have just downloaded some MP3s or some other in, yeah. you know uh, innovative format. Uh, but uh, and I don't like really just having the CD because it seems limiting uh, and it can get scratched and so on and so forth. Uh, but it, but it, what does it do? It makes it more precious if I have the album in vinyl format because it means it can get scratched. And so I want to have you know very careful attention paid. And so I, I, I know that I would listen to each cut slightly differently uh, and I would pay attention to the fact that these cuts have been put in a certain order on purpose. Yeah. Which which is not something I could have said, you know, three hours ago maybe, just thinking about, well, that's I can listen to this format in any uh, order I want. And uh, the, yeah. these points you're making aren't lost on, like, I think these are broader cultural points because, like, one of the, you know, Apple spent 10 minutes in their recent keynote explaining how they have humans curating parts of their new... Um, streaming service and like you know there's there's kind of this reach to try to regain some I don't know some imposed limitations on things so that you have an experience that's not just random but I don't know like I don't, I don't know where we go from now like just to put some of this in perspective I, I read some numbers that the entire music industry's revenue is 
equivalent to just the profits Apple makes in three months. So an annual year of just not counting profits, but their whole revenue of the entire music industry is one quarter of just after they've done their accounting, what Apple pulls in. And so like the question becomes, is the music industry really just a feature of technology now? It's no longer its own cultural force or I don't know. I mean, people are listening to more music than ever. Um, humans aren't slowing down in their consumption of music, but it's clearly so very different. And um, it, even just as a cultural force, it's subservient to technology in a way I, I don't think was ever really true before. Well, I'm thinking about uh, one of the other uh, Sunrise Robot podcasts, uh, Bits and Pieces, and then the Pseudo Show, which recently you know, generate a lot of thought in, in, in my head about uh, uh, just the, the, the idea of exhaustion. Yeah. <laughs> and, and some artists who exhibit exhaustion uh, as, as a kind of feature or a theme of their, of their, their, their outreach to, to uh, uh, listeners. And, uh, it, and it just reminded me that, that how, I used the word funnel, but uh, blinders I had on in 1965, and then it was an innovation to see the artist I thought I would never see, I mean, except for the album cover, uh, and you know, seeing Petula Clark perform downtown both thrilled me, and it, it was also disappointing. Yeah, never because, meet your heroes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so so this is what a British pop star, uh, and I, I had no idea at the time that she was also a, a French pop star. She could she could sing in either language with with uh, you know a plum and uh, and you know the the diversifying even of their personalities as artists was now unfolding before me instead of that's the guy who sang that song on that 45 on that label that I have stacked in my garage right now uh, and uh, you know when they start appearing in TV shows and they start appearing in movies and uh, and and then start appearing in retrospectives that uh, you know, uh, MTV or VH1 produces you know 20 years later uh, you know the the full spectrum of that, you know, hits me as I've based you know, my, you know, as we say, the soundtrack of my life on on loving these sets of songs. But well, this group they're really jerks, or yeah, or or she she uh, uh, she performs for uh, causes and audiences that you know I don't approve of. You know, let's say that as an example, or vice versa. Uh, oh, I didn't know that they were also a, a saving the whales person. I would yeah. have I've got bought, bought more of their music. Uh you know you know Jackson Brown is my example of that that uh, he wants to save the the oceans. I I think that's laudable. I'll you know I would buy <laughs> an album he produces even if I didn't like him, but I do. Yeah. But knowing that is is another incentive that uh it's not like he'll know I'm the guy in the crowd waving. I'm the no. one that bought your album because you want to save water. Uh and thank you Jackson Brown. I mean, don't you see that as kind of explored and embodied by the visual, the artists that embrace the visual, whether you want to bring up Madonna or uh, David Bowie or um, I know these are all later, but um, that that realize the, the way you present yourself publicly, it's now you have to think about everything beyond just the music or writing a good song. And maybe those are bad examples 
Um, but I mean, even today, I think like I, in the pseudo show where I interviewed Storm Glory, there was a lot of discussion about how, how do artists use social media? Could you imagine going to a band in the sixties and being like, well, you, you need to tweet and you, you need to, you need to say funny things, really short messages, <laughs> you know, every day and interact with people. And I don't know. Yeah. Well, you, you know, the, the, uh, the version of that on a very limited basis was the rise of teen magazines in the in the sixties, uh, and you know there wasn't Rolling Stone yet to to do author. Uh, I'm sorry, doing artist interviews uh, that could be provocative and revealing and and so forth. Um, uh, teen Beat and Tiger Beat were were two of the ones that uh, occasionally I would I would buy because they had uh, the the kind of features. That uh, uh, you know gave you some sort of view into the lives of these people, but then I found out later these are all written by the publicist, and we didn't get a single thing directly <laughs> yeah. from the artist because these had to be carefully screened and edited so that they wouldn't be offensive. So it's even more uh, manufactured stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, you know it's a whole world of so maybe uh, Derrida was right. They're, they're, everything is just performance. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know if he's right, but uh, <laughs> certainly many of the things are. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm self-conscious even on a podcast of wanting to express, express myself clearly with not making it sound like, oh, I just fell for everything that, <laughs> that, that, that the, the, the networks and the, and the uh, DJs, you know, laid out to me. You know, including, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of guy who you know, when he was 12 or 13, was calling into those those programs trying to get my favorite song up to number one so it, they would play it again at 8 o'clock. Yeah. And, you know, how silly that seems now. Like, well, I can play it at 8 o'clock. I can play it any time I want. I can play it 24 <laughs> hours a day. I, I, I can play it for my friends. I can, I can you know, ship it off as a as a tweet or a, you know... A, 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 yeah, but it's a, like... A, 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 yeah, you have unlimited candy now and you don't like candy anymore. It's just... Uh, yeah, it's not an achievement. <laughs> but I mean, to me, you know, forever one of the effects of these TV shows we've been talking about um, is we can no longer pretend that uh, the artists and the music that we we've loved and craved, and even that we don't even know exists yet, uh, can no longer they're no longer a mystery, and they're no longer. Just the province of the producers, the programmers, uh, and uh, you know, you know, the Beach Boys kind of proved that you could go in your garage and come up with a hit single, uh, and uh, it, there's just no way to keep it secret anymore if you don't want to keep. I mean, yeah. you know, per- performers obviously don't want to stay in their garages all their lives uh, uh, any more than computer uh, computer makers do, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't think we knew that. I don't think the the public at large knew that until these shows started breaking out. And, uh, you know, they may not have been on a long time, but they have a legendary influence, I think, on um, everything about the music industry. And, you know, there's, you know, as we say, there's no genie in the bottle except for the the TV show, I Dreamed of Genie, where she does get in and out of the bottle (laughs) all the time. Uh, It seems like we ought to mention the monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. who are the the first group of this era who are you know a product of auditions uh and, and a show that's planned and scripted just to surround their crazy antics 
around an eventual single that's going to appear toward the end of a half-hour episode. And, uh, and even knowing that, people still watched it. And even though, as you know, is, is often the case in these times, uh, only one of the four actually played their own instruments before this television show. And Mickey Dolenz, who turned out to be a pretty good drummer, but he had, he had not been any kind of performing drummer before his appearance on The Monkees. Uh, and Davy Jones was an, an English kind of pop star, but he didn't play any instruments. And so every time you see The Monkees, he's always playing the tambourine. Yeah, uh, and and then uh, uh, it, it was disconcerting in a sense, but since I couldn't play any instruments, I identified with them. I thought, <laughs> hey, you know, maybe there's room for me in the music industry, even though I can't play anything. <laughs> and in fact, it turned out there's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you have that hammered dulcimer, and I'm still waiting for your album. Right. Right. Well, I I took drum and trumpet in school, and neither of them led anywhere, except <laughs> uh, to the trash can. So, uh, have have you ever seen any episodes of the Monkees? Um, I just before we recorded, I watched some of their performances: the the last train to Clarksville, and uh, um, forget which other song I looked up, but um, I definitely noticed the prominent tambourine performance in, in the videos. Yeah. Um, but no, I didn't see anything outside of just the song performances. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in in music history, they have a uh, there's a benign place for them, and uh, even some appreciation for them because you begin to factor in the awkwardness uh, of of the situation of wanting to produce good music, and you know, if they had a Neil Diamond song they could sing, like Daydream Believer, or uh, I'm sorry, that's not uh, that's not him. That's uh, John Stewart, yeah, uh, who wrote that. But uh, uh, thank the Lord for the nighttime. Did they do that one? One of the Neil Diamond songs. I'm sure I'm a believer. There it is. It had yeah. some religious connotation. Um, you know, but most of the time they're they're, they're pretty forgettable uh, in terms <laughs> of their production. The the only way other TV shows of this era were used to produce hit singles or or viable performers were embedded in certain special episodes. So you know the Ozzie and Harriet show had Ricky Nelson, who was a very popular uh, teen idol, uh, and uh, you know every every one of the episodes of that show, uh, which was kind of a an even a Leave It to Beaver sort of show, uh, but there always was a way to get Ricky and his band to perform. And it was, it was I, I, you know, ironic and iconic that he would, he would be appearing. Uh, and so many people would tune in to the last 10 minutes of the show just to see his next, next song. Uh, the Mickey Mouse Club had you know, performers who became very famous later, Annette Funicello and uh, uh, let's see who else uh, were important musical Figures Frankie Avalon, uh, some some of those characters, uh, either through beach movies or the Mickey Mouse Club, uh, or they were embedded in a show that wasn't about music at all. Like Seventy Seven Sunset Strip featured Ed Kooky Burns. Kooky, <laughs> lend me your comb was one of his hit songs. It was kind of a talk song, uh, and you know, on, on, on Donna Reed's show, you had Paul Peterson who did a few. Uh, teen ballads, which were popular and sold sold uh, singles, and uh, Shelley Fabre, 
she was his sister on the show, and uh, she had the famous one-hit wonder, Johnny Angel. But uh, you say, well, those are, are kind of contrived. I think they were no more contrived than, than the episodes that had uh, on, on the monkeys uh, and uh, you know some of the forgettable comedy shows of the era, also on ABC, that uh, you know featured a group that had nothing to do with the, the comedy angle of the show, but they just were, were guest stars on the show. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's an era of experimentation. Uh, it yields the the more open playlist and the uh, wider perspective on uh, who is a legitimate talent, because you could have talked to anybody in 1962, and and they would have said rock and roll. There's no stars. There's just noise. That was like a typical typical thing. Hmm. So. If you were to make recommendations or, or what is even possible for people who might want to dig through this era and watch the best of it or the, the most notable things. I mean, I know YouTube's a great source, but um, it seems like we, we've lost some of these things to the sands of time a little bit. Um, would you say Hoot Nanny is what we should go look at? or Well, uh, certainly Hoot Nanny, and because it's, uh, although, uh, I, I, you know, interestingly enough, uh, uh, Try as they may, ABC tried to erase the tapes of Hoot and Nanny at a certain point. I didn't know it was because they thought they were going to be called before a congressional committee and didn't want the evidence to be out there. But uh, but there was enough to to put together a two hour video uh, on uh, on, v- on uh, DVD. So definitely see that. I think uh, it's it's somewhat entertaining to watch the shindig retrospective that's on YouTube uh, that uh, was originally a VH1 documentary. Uh, and the, you know, as many uh, of the artists who were who are still alive, because, you know, that's almost, you know, it's more than 50 yeah. years ago now. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. And you can find episodes of American Bandstand uh, and another program ABC developed to be a rival or an additional uh, not a rival as much as a, a complimentary show to American Bandstand. It came out at 4.30 in the afternoon called Where the Action Is. And a featured performer was Freddie Cannon. <laughs> and uh, also a host of Paul Revere and the Raiders, who both of these artists were considered like, you know, double A to somebody else's major league talent. And so this this gave them some some visibility. And, uh, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders you know, had lots of of hit albums uh, later in the uh, 60s. But in, when this program was on, they were like the stock, you know, rock group that uh, were on every episode because it was on five days a week. Uh, and, uh, you know, those, those are all uh, available on uh, YouTube. And, in fact, another thing I was reading today uh, in regard to your comment about uh, uh, Google Music being being a, a good resource, but it's, it's spread across multiple names and multiple sites, yeah. and so it's hard to find things. Uh, I, I think they have some unimaginable number of music, vintage music videos available on YouTube. Like I, I can't even remember how many hours, but uh, certainly dwarfs even the ability of uh, of uh, recording studios to match that in terms of the vintage uh, works. Yeah. No, that's great, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to 
taking a deeper dive into some of these shows that are well before my time. I, I don't know if I'd be as interested in looking into the music videos of the eighties so much, um, for, for my youth, but, um, maybe I'm just not far enough away from it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, I don't think I've seen a uh, contemporary. Uh, no, I, I haven't seen an MTV type video. And of course, MTV doesn't show them anymore either. I don't know what they use for for the platform. But uh, uh, since uh, maybe close to that uh, Tony Basil one I mentioned earlier. <laughs> so, uh, any final thoughts or questions or, or topics to to kind of tie a bow on this? Well, I am just uh, happy to bear witness to this era and the, and the kind of uh, uh, changing economics of uh, what, what we have access to, to see and to watch. It, it certainly goes along with you know, science fiction, uh, shows like The Fugitive, and, and broadening our sense of what storytelling is about, in this case, what music is about. Yeah. Seems like that, that was a pretty important era in the middle of the 20th century. That's right. And it's... Uh, you know, it was in that era that, of course, there's the day that, that music died, uh, which was the assassination of uh, JFK. But uh, that's another episode to do a little bit later. Sounds like it. Well, um, dear listener, uh, this brings us to the end of episode 11 of Some Pulp. And uh, you can find show notes, including links to Hootenanny and Shindig and um, Teen Beat magazine. And uh, you can head to sunriserobot.net slash sumpulp slash 11 uh, to get access to all those links. Or maybe you're already there listening, and that's you can see the links right there on the page. Um, we love feedback and interaction, so uh, if you want to tweet with us, um, Bruce, you're at some, or Bruce BGSU is your... <laughs> your name is some pulp, but you're I'm, at... <laughs> I'm at Bruce BGSU... Uh, <laughs> what am I at? Yeah. BruceBGSU at gmail.com. Or even just on Twitter, uh, you can go to twitter.com slash BruceBGSU. And uh, if you're on Twitter, you can uh, ask questions or interact. Um, I'm at Medwards Music on Twitter. And uh, we love comments and questions and follow up and all that. Um, if you're uh, a listener through the web, one cool thing you can do is subscribe to this show and you'll never miss a new episode. Um, if you have a podcast app on your iPhone or if you download an app for Android, um, Pocket Cast is a great one. Um, you can actually click the RSS button on our website and subscribe and uh, that'll get you new episodes automatically. Your phone will just magically pull them down when there's new episodes. You don't even have to think about it. And uh, it's a great way to stay up to date on our, our topics and our shows. Um, if you'd like to support the show beyond uh, listening, um, you can head to the Sunrise Robot Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash sunrise robot, um, anything donated just goes a long way. And uh, thank you so much. And uh, with that, um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>